0: there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from P.S. Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi Carly and Cece. Welcome everyone to another segment of Books with Hooks. As per usual, we're not going to waste any of your time and we're just going to dive right in. Okay, Carly, why don't you get us started with that first query letter?
2: Dear, parentheses agent, parentheses, please consider my debut work, Shoot Your Shot, a young adult contemporary novel complete at 69,000 words. Set in a small Pennsylvania town, Shoot Your Shot will appeal to readers who love the voice and humor of You Should See Me in a Crown by Leah Johnson and the sporty romance of Throw Like a Girl by Sarah Hennig. Forget prom queen, the only title 16-year-old Paige Race wants to earn is top shooter in the Pennsylvania Rifle League with her best friend Van by her side. Paige is laser-focused on redemption after last year's second-place finish, and nothing is going to shake her resolve. Until the handsome shooter who bested her last year transfers to her school and earns a place on the team, bumping Van off the roster in the process. Without the team to tie them together, the foundation of Paige and Van's friendship starts to crumble. Paige is desperate to keep her friendship with Van as strong as ever and determined not to like her new teammate and biggest rival, no matter how stupidly cute and annoyingly nice he can be. When a generous scholarship is tied to the top shooter title and Van gets tangled up with a sketchy new boyfriend, Paige learns neither of those things will be as easy as she expects. Since my years as a competitive shooter and assistant coach at a Pennsylvania high school, I've been steadily writing while working full-time and raising two young children. So this is my first novel-length work. I've published two chapbooks of poetry and have multiple essays and short humor pieces featured in notable publications, like AARP, Scary Mommy, Reader's Digest, McSweeney's Internet Tendency and in the New Yorker Daily Shouts column. I can often be found taking or teaching classes at the Muse Writer Center in Norfolk, Virginia. Thank you so much for your consideration. I appreciate your time and hope to hear from you soon. Sincerely, Shannon J. Curtin.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Carly. And just for our listeners, she did include a personalized note before the actual query letter. So I know for some of you, we've been getting very, very generic kind of query letters and I've been rejecting them and sending them back and saying, we need to know that you are learning from the podcast and that you need to personalize your queries. And that is extremely, extremely important. So uh, when we do open up to submissions again, even though, you know, Carly and Cece may not be your dream agents in terms of the genre you're querying, they want to see that you are able to personalize a query letter. All right, Cece, why don't you tell us what you thought of that query letter? This is a very well-written query letter. The
3: the writer's done a really great job. Because we are offering feedback, I would say first sentence you could rephrase it to, instead of saying, please consider my debut work, shoot your shot. You could say, please consider my YA debut novel, shoot your shot, complete at 69. And then you can say K instead of writing out 69,000. That's a very minor note only because this is a very solid first paragraph. So in terms of the plot paragraphs, I understand exactly what the narrative arc is going to consist of. I know what the hero's journey is going to be. It's really clear. I know what the stakes are. I would rephrase, maybe even rework entirely, the last sentence of the third paragraph, the last clause, actually, of that sentence, which reads, "Page learns neither of those things will be as easy as she expects. Here's why. One, I don't think she expects them to be easy because she seems really competitive. And this is clear by the query letter and also from having read the pages. Two, it doesn't quite work in terms of like the action, like because this refers to two things. And one of these things is Van getting tangled up with a sketchy new Boyfriend. So probably what she's trying to say is that Paige learns that you know I don't know if rescuing her friend is a fair characterization, but helping her friend through this or or being a good friend while her friend is going through this isn't as easy as it seems or as she expects. So I would just rework that last sentence. It felt it felt a little less elegant than I would want it to be. Loved the last paragraph. The writer has totally shared enough about her that I feel like she's a real person. This is something that's really special about books with hooks. We often interact with listeners on on Twitter and on Instagram. And it's so much fun. I get DMs and people sharing how much they love the podcast. And it's become an even more close-knit community than before. So this is really special. And right now, reading this great letter, I feel like I know this person. So great job.
0: Wonderful. Thanks, Cece. Okay, Carly, what did you
2: think of it? Right away, I was really intrigued because I like sporty girl stories. and As was mentioned, you know, YA isn't one of my primary categories. I used to rep a lot more YA and kid lit than I do, but I just found as an agent and as I kind of grew in my career, it was just too hard for me to know every editor in Kidlet and every editor in adult. So I kind of still dabble in the genre. I still enjoy it, but from a professional perspective, being able to be the best at my job, I just don't feel like I could serve all categories that well, as well as I used to be able to. And And exactly the way I want to. So, all that to say, I do still enjoy YA, um, but it's not my specialty anymore. And I also want to tell you guys a fun story. You might not know about me. So, I grew up playing soccer, played varsity soccer at university, at Queen's University. And yeah, I'm a very, very competitive person, played a lot of sports growing up, played a lot of hockey, got a lot of penalty minutes, in case that surprises anybody. But one story I wanted to tell you was the reason that I ended playing sports was that I had a head and head collision playing soccer and I broke my orbital bone. I now have a titanium plate holding up my left eyeball. So, um, some of my clients that know that they always call me the bionic super agent. I always get asked, Do you ever like beep going through at the airport, you know, get, going through security? And titanium is not one of the metals that beeps. And that's why they use it for security. So, all that to say, you know, I'm very into sports. I'm very competitive. If you haven't guessed that about me already, um, CC kind of hit the nail on the head with this one. It's a very well written query. I mean, I don't really have any concrete notes, it's a great conflict a very strong hook. I mean, it gets to the point. In terms of YA, like this is dramatic as it gets, right? Like you're trying to, you know, win this scholarship. You know, you're losing your best friend. You're not sure if you have a romantic interest with a colleague on your team or a friend on your team. So it's like lots going on here. So for YA, this is as high of stakes as it gets, really. And in terms of the author bio paragraph, they have the McSweeney's reference and the New Yorker Daily Shows reference. So like I'm getting the sense that this is a very funny person, very smart, very witty person. Like you don't get published in those two publications without being very witty and very smart. So I have some high expectations uh, rolling into these pages. So could I
3: actually mention one more thing about the query letter, which occurred to me after I said I was done. Because, of course, because this deals with guns, I would just add a sp- any references to whether we need content warnings, because this is me being very selfish. I don't know if any animals are going to get hurt because there might be hunting. So yeah, just if, if maybe even add a line, like even though this, deal, this deals with guns, there is no like gun violence. I don't know. Just, just to be extra sick. Cause I would be scared. Okay. Pages. I really enjoy these pages. Very, very well written for the listener. We have our protagonist at the shooting range. Her coach is there. Her friend is there. Her best friend. We learned that the protagonist loves shooting because it's all about control, which is a great detail by the way, because you're telling me about her skill and also why she likes that thing, which informs her personality and adds to character development. We also learned that she's really good at it because she gets high marks. She scored a 98 or 99. Her best friend doesn't do as well though. So they leave the shooting range together after these five pages. So I have three comments to share, two questions, and one big picture note. My comments first. Their second page, there's dialogue where the best friend is saying, Don't even pretend you're worried, Race. You were our top shooter last year. That felt borderline info dumpy, like borderline, not quite info dumpy, but you're an elegant writer. I've read all your pages, like five of your pages at this point, so I know that you can do better. I would just tweak that a little bit. Second note, the last paragraph page two, I started noticing that a lot of the sentences started with I or another pronoun like we. And again, it's totally okay to do it often, but it was again, borderline. So that's another line note to, to maybe consider. So on page four, her origin story with her best friend, we learned that they met at the cafeteria on the first day of sixth grade. They were the only two sixth graders in the lunch period and found each other like magnets. And it's a very sweet story, but it's reading a little generic in the sense that it could be anyone's story. I would add something quirky there. Like it could be the smallest detail, but like just the fun, quirky detail to to make this stand out more and make it be a little bit less generic just because it could, could be anyone's story. And then one of my questions is, where are we like in the in the country? I I wanted to know. And then my big picture note. So it's typically good to have a shift by the end of the first scene and they do leave the shooting range so these five pages do cover a whole scene right like they're at the shooting range and then they leave together by they i mean the protagonist and their best friend and there's really no shift since thing was really easy for the protagonist many many episodes ago we covered the arrogant win this is not it because an arrogant win requires that the, the protagonist not care about winning This protagonist cares very much about winning. So they are totally different things, but they're still under the same umbrella of what are the stakes, why should I care? Maybe she should be worried about her performance at the beginning of this perhaps because, I don't know, she didn't sleep well the night before, maybe because of some problem in her life. Like she has a crush on a boy or her, there was, I don't know, her parents were arguing. Maybe that could even inform us of her family situation. Like a line about that. I think that this would add tension since her insecurity would pass on to us as the reader and then we'd be rooting for her. And in the end, she'd do well and we'd be really happy for her. But then we deflate again when the best friend didn't do well since she cares about her best friend. So that would be kind of like a roller coaster of emotions, which I think, makes it a bit more interesting, more full of tension. Alternatively, you could keep it as is, but then make sure that she's really invested in her friend doing well. This will be harder to pull off because you're trying to get us to care about the character who's caring about another character. So it's sort of like the Russian doll situation with expectations, but it could be done. The the thing to keep in mind in terms of the big picture note is that the reader needs a reason to connect with your protagonist and applying pressure to your protagonist is the best way to do that since we become curious and emotionally invested.
0: Awesome. Thanks, See? Something I just want to add there, a trick for avoiding beginning your sentences with like subject, verb, object, subject, verb, object, meaning time and again, you have I, 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 which remember that when you're doing something in first person can sound really arrogant, it can sound self-absorbed. There's something about I, I, I that is very different to mark, 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 or Jane, 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 for example. But to mix that up is use those continuous verbs to start with. So an example would be, I rifled through my purse for my lipstick while I glared at Mark. Now, if you don't want to begin with the I, you can begin with that continuous verb, rifling through my purse for my lipstick, comma, I glared at Mark. So everything is still there. You're just making sure that you're mixing up those sentences so you don't have every sentence beginning with the um, subject. Okay, Carly, what did you think of those pages? I forgot to mention this in the query,
2: and I'm glad that that Susie brought it up as well because it was on my mind the entire time, which is the the gun subject matter. Definitely overrided. Like the first time that I read this, all I could think about was the guns. The second time that I read it, I was able to focus on the content. And so I do feel like there is some element of trigger warning needed because- this isn't necessarily, again, we don't know like if there isn't a violent act associated with the guns. We don't, we're not led to believe that that is true necessarily, but it's not not true. And children, these are children, right? They're teens. Children and guns is a difficult topic. So I do believe there is a content warning, maybe not necessarily a trigger warning necessarily needed, but I think a content warning is probably needed. So I I definitely agree. I think it was on the top of my mind. I thought these were really well done pages. My Big note for this author is dialogue. I thought dialogue was the weakest part of the submission. I, again, think it's really strong, but I think dialogue is where the work needs to be done. And it happens a lot with YA because these are adult authors, like adults were writing teen voices. And I love that this person has a background coaching teens. Obviously, we all were teens at one point, but being close to teens through the process of writing this, not, a, not exactly the same example, but there's a famous example of um, when Emma Donahue was writing Room, she followed her five-year-old child around on the ground for days at a time would just like literally be on hands and knees like you know slow like exactly trying to emulate what it was that the five-year-old was doing the way that the five-year-old was talking like just was a five-year-old for weeks at a time right and it's the same thing that you have to do when you're writing for any child you really have to think about what it is that they are actually saying in this moment and dialogue is contrived right that's the whole point of dialogue this is a an author trying to make a scene happen right these are puzzle pieces you're controlling the situation and so I have so much sympathy for for YA writers because it's so hard, right? You're writing the adult characters and the teen characters. So I think the dialogue is where the work needs to be done in this section. But I I agree with Cece. I think the really interesting thing about this activity, you know, this hobby of the sport being about guns is it is about the control. There's a line that says that's the other thing I like most about sport. Everyone is equal on the shooting line. It doesn't matter if you're fat or thin, athletic or asthmatic, rich or poor. All that matters is consistency and self-control. So I like these themes and I I like that the author is choosing to focus on this as opposed to any sensationalization about the guns themselves. So yeah, it really piqued my my curiosity. Again, I don't I don't work on a lot of YA, but I haven't seen a lot of projects about, you know, rifle shooting and as a sport. So I think there is a hook here. Just needs to tread
0: lightly. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. While we're speaking about Emma Donahue, I just this is completely off topic, but I don't know if we'll get an opportunity in another episode to tackle this, is as well how she's the master of choosing settings that really reflects the character's conflicts. So in Room, the whole thing takes place in this tiny, tiny room. And, you know, she said in interviews how that room was a metaphor for the claustrophobia of motherhood, you know? So when you're picking your settings, don't just randomly go, oh, it's going to be this place or that place. If you can have a setting reflect what the the story's kind of push and pull is, that's amazing as well. And she did the exact same thing in the pull of the stars, which took place during the Spanish flu over just a few days. And that took place in a Dublin maternity ward and everything she chose about that book in terms of not using quotation marks for dialogue and not using italics for in a monologue was to kind of show the fever dream quality of being so exhausted, being a nurse at that time and being a woman who's giving birth at that time. And all of that reflected so perfectly in the setting of this maternity So, you know, she's like a method writer, you know, some actors are method actors when it comes to writing. Um, She does that perfectly with characterization and then in terms of scene. So read her books to see how a master does it. Okay, Cece, would you like to read our next query letter for us? Dear Carly and Cecilia, I am seeking representation for my commercial women's
3: fiction manuscript, The Captain's Wife. Complete at 80,500 words. This is a novel about second chances, family secrets, and finding the courage to say yes to life for fans of Sarah Morgan's One Summer in Paris and Mamma Mia at 29. Anne Snow is the reigning queen of writing erectile dysfunction medication ads. But when her boss demands she set her latest ad to the tune of Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, Anne's refusal leaves her jobless. She seeks comfort from a boyfriend, only to realize he's been comforting another woman. And then a conversation about hereditary diseases leads to a devastating discovery that Anne's parents are not biologically hers reeling from the shock, Anne stumbles on an Airstream trailer turned bookmobile and its charismatic librarian, Lexi Fieldgate, 50-year-old world traveler and author of the best-selling memoir, The Captain's Wife. In this book, within a book... Lexi shares stories of adventure, which inspire Anne to let go of the fears that stop her from realizing her future. Despite her flying phobia, Anne and Lexi take off on an epic journey exploring the spy souks of Dubai and Bangkok's exotic fragrant streets. Anne finds a taste for Guinness and an unexpected romance with a 30-year-old musician Toper O'Shea in Dublin, but just as the threads of her life are weaving together, a long hidden secret threatens to unravel her world. My book's opening was shortlisted at the Emirates Festival of Literature's Literary Idol Competition in Dubai. I'm a graduate of Wilfrid Laurier University in music and English, and besides writing novels, I enjoy a career as a singer, voice actor, and playwright. Although I'm not the captain's wife, I am a captain's wife, and I wrote much of this novel at 37,000 feet. I'm currently working
0: on my next manuscript. Thank you for your time and consideration. Yours sincerely, Sandra. Awesome. Cece, thank you for that. Right. So Carly, what did you think of that query letter?
2: Structurally, just looking at it, very sound, you know, very few paragraphs organized very well. So the right length, all of that great stuff. A lot of times when we're getting pitched women's fiction, authors don't know how to pitch it to us because the, the word women's fiction has the word fiction in it. And so they don't know how to write, I'm, you know, I'm pitching you my women's fiction Fiction or my, my women's fiction novel. You know, some people stumble about that. So they said, my commercial women's fiction manuscript. And I thought that was a nice way to word it. So if you're ever looking for how to how to pitch women's fiction without duplicating the word fiction, I thought that was great. I liked the title. I don't know if this title has been done before. It seems like a title that might be done before. I haven't done any research on that. It sounds a little bit common with like the wife, you know, we get a lot of wife pitches. I like it, like it fits into the genre, but I, I would be worried that this title has been done before. So the next paragraph gets into the the plot itself. And then there's a second plot paragraph as well. These two paragraphs were very different. I almost felt like I was being pitched to a different book. There was also a lot of a pylon of information and a pylon with a lot of state, right? Like they're not clear on... If she doesn't even like her job, getting fired from her job or losing her job, what's the problem? Is it money? You know what I mean? Like everybody needs money to live. But like what what is at stake when somebody loses their job? It has to be about more than just the job. And then we have the boyfriend sleeping with somebody else. The parents learning that her parents are not biologically hers. Like these are huge revelation and in life if this has happened to somebody in real life you would think like that's a one in a million situation and so we have talked about before like the concept of plausibility like could this actually happen in fiction and because this is so incredibly implausible it, it almost doesn't work you know what I mean because there's just so many things happening the thing about fiction is that it has to be plausible in order to actually have the reader buy into what is happening and feel like they could be immersed in this world
0: and just on that. So in terms of that was done really well in Love Actually. So the Colin Firth character comes home unexpectedly from the funeral scene to check on his wife, which is when he finds his wife with his brother. So the one thing like she was sick, said she wasn't going to come to the funeral because she's sick. He then comes home to check on her. And that's how he finds out. So remember those domino effect things that we keep speaking about. It should be losing the job perhaps results in her having to go home early, which results in her discovering this. In terms of finding out about the parents not being, you know, her biological parents, again, we don't just want a bunch of random bad things happening to a character. We want a knock-on effect of things. Yeah, that also got
2: me thinking about another example of this, which is the book by Jonathan Tropper. It also was turned into a film, but This Is Where I Leave You. It's another one of those kind of like pile-on things, but it's not about the pile-on, right? Like it's about everything else, which I think is is so important to remember. So that's just another example there. And so the next section I was talking about was just, yeah, so so how very different these two body paragraphs are. I just felt like I, these were two very different books that, that I was being pitched here. And I'm also confused about the book within the book concept here. So we have like, what is the book? Like, I'm just not clear on what is the book within the book. Obviously you're talking about this person wrote a book called The Captain's Wife and your book is also called The Captain's Wife, but are they also writing a book while they're on this holiday or exploratory mission? Like, is it a book within a book within a book? Like very confused on, on actual logistics of this. I am also a bit concerned about the word exotic, you know, I don't know enough about, you know, the history of this term to really like do a deep dive into this, but I'm worried about just the, the othering and, you know, being an outsider in this world and the representation and writing about it and maybe C.C. can speak more eloquently to this, but I feel like the word exotic is a little bit problematic and I would take another look at that. I also feel like we're hopping around to so many places that it's very hard to get invested in something. Like take, you know, Eat, Pray, Love, for example, right? There's three locations and even that is a lot of hopping to feel like we're fully in three places. So I felt like with this, with so much hopping, I'm just having a bit of a hard time imagining how I'm going to be fully invested going to that many locations and doing that many things. So that's my main take. I really liked this, you know, even though I'm not the captain's wife, I am a captain's wife and wrote much of this novel at 37,000 feet. Super interesting. Loved that little tidbit. So yeah, I just have a lot of questions. It's not that this isn't interesting. It's just what's
0: going on in this book. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. Okay, Okay. Cece, what did you think?
3: Echoing everything Carly said, totally agree. That was a brilliant analysis. I would, I guess I would add that we don't need to know everyone's ages. Like maybe it makes sense for us to know that Lexi's 50 and that Anne is 29, because that's an unusual friendship in the sense that there's a big age gap. But like you keep, you told us how old Topher is too, right? Or not Topher, Topper. I don't know what the man's name is. Her romantic interest. And we don't need to know that. It just takes up space and it sounds more synopsy-like. So. It's not really important. You know, a small detail that you just don't need there and it's taking up space. As well, I very, very much agree. And I know I've said that I'm echoing all of Carly's notes and I am, and I just want to like double down on the pile on with not a lot of stakes. The thing that bothered me is that I don't see how it's connected in the sense that it's not supposed to only be things that are happening to the same person. It's supposed to be things that are leading us to a climax, right? If it's commercial women's fiction. And then I don't see what the climax is, the the long hidden secret that threatened to unravel her world, is that connected to one of the discoveries, to the boyfriend, to the parents? I have a wild imagination. So I started thinking all sorts of crazy things. Her boyfriend was actually her biological brother, Like crazy things in my head. And it's all the novella I watched growing up. But it's it's just one of those things that I need to know more. Like you're telling me, you're giving me a lot of information on this person's life. And actually, I still don't know what's at stake. And I still don't know how they come together. And that is what makes us request pages. We are interested in, oh my gosh, I want to know what's going to happen to this person. And right now I don't have a, oh my gosh, what is going to happen feeling because the, the stakes aren't there. The reality, and this is not meant to discourage. It's the opposite. It's meant to encourage writers. But the reality is that there are tons of novels out there about women who quit their jobs, leave their, their, their boyfriends or husbands or partners or whatever, and go travel the world with an unexpected friend or, or alone. What makes this one special? I need to know what the hook is. And if it's the book within the book. Let me tell you, that is probably the hardest thing to pull off. Can it be done? Yes. But you're asking us to be invested in two different stories, when getting us invested in one is already a huge challenge, and you're not telling us how it's connected. So please just tell us. We're very curious. We want to know.
0: Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, what did you think of the opening pages? So to set the scene for the
2: listener, we have a character on set at a you know filming or some sort of commercial. We're kind of like getting a handle on what's exactly happening here so the first line is grasping thorn-free long-stemmed roses he stood erect covering his private bit so right away we're kind of getting a hmm, we're in an interesting we're in an interesting moment an interesting scene here um so that definitely gets our attention so we have the the narrator the main character who is the writer of the commercial itself kind of on on set for their for their work <laughs> being brought to life in this commercial which is an erectile dysfunction commercial so something that happens that kind of of weirded me out a little bit on the second page was the actor and the writer have this little interaction. (laughs) And it says, you know, I averted my eyes from his exposed personal area, masked by a barely there peach-colored pasty. I appreciate the boost of confidence. His smile was sincere and warm like my dad's. An unwanted version of dad, naked except for socks and roses, skipped through my brain in a flash. I was super weirded out by this dad-naked man connection. Really weird out by it. So I don't know if it was just the way that it was worded, the order of the words, but I would highly recommend not wording it like that because that really made me feel icky. <laughs> so other than that, my main note is we spend the whole five pages on set. And so we've, CC and I've talked about this and she just talked about this with the other query, but just getting us off set into a new location, switching gears, don't spend all five pages in one location because we just get a little bit bored, right? We've, we've set the scene. We know what, you know what she's doing. We know, her career we know she's having an awkward moment you know we understand all of this the boss etc etc but just quickly get us to the next location so please don't spend all five pages in one place but other than that this is um an interesting
0: little scene I will say that awesome thanks Carly okay Cece what was your take on those opening pages
3: so before I even dive in so character development note There are three instances where I read and I was like, I don't understand. Is she, is she supposed to be like sarcastic, funny? Is this for real? Like I wasn't sure what the, what I was supposed to feel towards her and The first time it happened right in the first page where in the sentence that reads, I was fast becoming the queen of writing erectile dysfunction medication ads. And this commercial was sure to be my shimmering moment in the spotlight, glamour, fame, the realization of a dream. It was all coming true. And I read that and I thought, oh, she's being sarcastic, but then maybe not. And then I want that question to be answered. That is your job. If I have a question in the first page, I'm I'm supposed to get an answer about something as minor as this. I'm supposed to get an answer on the second or third page. So when I reached the third page, we got backstory about her leaving university and getting her first job and how she thought that, you know, she was devastated because an ad of hers was bumped and that really really hurt her feelings because and this is the line i had already purchased tickets to the event in anticipation of the overwhelming response my ad would have on attendance a brilliant ad they would say watch out for this amazing young talent champagne flutes raised in glorious tribute so i still don't know if this is sarcasm or not because if it's not it's totally fine one way or another it works but i need to know like tonally i need to know tone is very important in the first five pages it's one of the main ingredients of of hooking a reader and then it happens again in the very last page because she says I wanted the world and or at least the local cable subscribers to love it to love me the world and the local cable subscribers like this is why I think it's probably sarcasm and probably the humor but I'm not I maybe I'm not the reader for this there's always that possibility when someone shares their thoughts on a page they're sharing as much about their themselves as they are about the writing so entirely possible that this is on me. But my character development note is tied to my note about tone, which is if this is supposed to be humorous, I'm not quite getting it. I think she either needs to be more exaggerated and just just really lean into her very funky and and quirky personality or tone it down. Because right now it's this weird middle for, for my taste. And in terms of my big picture note, it's, it's really echoing what Carly said. So we spent at least 50% of these pages learning what she expected from her career when she started, what her expectations are now. The challenges of working with her creepy, potentially abusive boss and what her dream job would be, it's too much offering context as opposed to telling a story, right? Like I don't actually need to know what her dream was from university in the first five pages. I don't actually need to know that that her first ad was bumped. These are not relevant things in the first five pages. Keep them. You will use them for your future pages, but not for the opening scene. So what I think you should do instead, right? Like how, well, how you should spend the, those 50% that, that I just talked about. So the shot seems to be going really well for the character. So there's no tension. I would add tension. Maybe the shot isn't going well. And then I want to feel protective. I want to root for her. I want to be really worried for her. Maybe this is, maybe she's on probation at work or something and this needs to go well. There wasn't a clear goal for this character. There weren't, there wasn't a clear obstacle. Now I'm mindful that towards the end of this, Oliver, that's her creepy, potentially abusive boss shows up. So maybe trouble would start, right? Like maybe we stop reading right at the mark where like Oliver was going to have and that's totally fine. But I still think that at the very, very, very beginning, instead of having her go, Brilliant, this is all working well, this ad is perfect, maybe have her be, I don't know, arguing with the director over something or nervous about something in her head. Just give it more tension right from the beginning. Because that way, when Oliver does walk in and hopefully adds even more tension to the scene, you're building a bigger event on like a smaller ten- tense moment. And that's just the good kind of escalation of tension that we seek in stories. So
1: those are my notes.
0: Okay. So today we only had two query letters and we're now going to dive in to try and answer more of your Q and A's that you sent through to us. Okay. So the first question is about author websites at the querying stage. So somebody has written, uh, I was wondering if you could enlighten me as to whether an author website is important to create before you query agents. I have been a freelance journalist for a long time and always thought my bios, articles, and LinkedIn page would be enough of an online presence. And recently I've also created Instagram and Twitter profiles. I've heard conflicting advice as to whether I need to create an author. The website as well at this stage I'd love to hear your thoughts
2: I would say since you have to do an author website eventually and you have all of this content why not create a website I mean there's so many amazing free templates on WordPress Squarespace is also extremely affordable so I would say just go for it it's really nice to have a landing page uh, and just have one place, one place that you can direct people to I don't see any problem with with doing it there's there's no downsides right and there's a huge upside so to me it's kind of a no brainer, just to, to put it together. What do you think, Cece?
3: I I say I agree. I definitely think there's no downside to do it and lots of upside. I would also add that you know, for anyone listening that had doesn't have an author website, I I don't think I've ever checked if
2: my clients have
3: an author website, which is a problem. I should, but I like when we get a query, we 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 look people up, and if they don't have a website, because you're on social media these days, that that does give us a, a glimpse into your life, and it's enough for us to maybe check out who you are. So if you don't have it, i wouldn't stress about it but if you are able to do one yeah that sounds great
2: yeah you just need a calling card somewhere right and some people say you're an exactly. illustrator right like obviously instagram is going to be your calling card which is totally fine so i think it's just what are you writing what are you writing about is it easily googleable or or where is that where can that content be found yeah. so as long as you can check all of those boxes i agree
3: yeah and how google is your name too right because that that could also yeah so so the next question is is it polite to re-query after rejection if you've improved your query and story? And if so, how long should a writer wait? So, I would say that it's fine to re-query if you've really, really worked on your story. It's an improvement should be um, a significant improvement, right? Like it should be a major edit. You don't have to wait a minimum amount of time in the sense that you don't have to go like, oh, three months, that's a three month mark. It's all good. I get to submit. It's more about waiting whatever time you need to wait to make your story good. I w- would be very skeptical of an author who you know, who told me, oh, two weeks later, here's my, my revised revised manuscript or my revised, I worked on it. Two weeks is not enough for a major overhaul, for a major edit. Even if you're really fast, and I do know some authors who are, you still need to let it simmer. You need to put it away, give it some time, look at it with fresh eyes, show it to beta readers, show it to critique partners, share this with people in your life. So it's not really about giving, waiting time for the agent's sake. It's about giving it time for the for the sake of the work, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I have. Uh, I'm of many minds about this. This is actually the number one thing that I get DM'd about. I will say that this is the number one thing I get DM'd about because people think that they just like they have this one shot, and then they're so like heartbroken sometimes if you know the one shot doesn't work out. And I'm like, I I've always said this on the podcast. I am a human being. I am not a robot. Like I have some sympathy and empathy, and I can understand that you're a human being in a creative field trying to launch a career. Like I I totally understand all of those things. So I always. Think they totally fine to re me, of course. But I really hope that it, it is a dramatic revision. It really has to be real so, so yeah, I would say it has to be a, a dramatic revision.
0: So Gloria's question is, how do we approach agents? I've heard a one-pager with a full proposal and many other approaches. I'm thinking Carly and Cece are going to tell you that it changes via agents and that you need to check out their requirements. But let's see. Cece, would you like to answer that one?
3: That's exactly it. This is not unsimilar to applying for university or applying for a job. Now, obviously what you're doing is very different, but the application process for most things in life is you go to the source, you check out what that source is expecting of of you and you adapt. That's the the rule. So, you know, if you're interested in querying Carly or myself, you would go to PS Literary's website and you would check under submissions what the guidelines are and you would follow those guidelines. The reason why you hear many, many approaches is because each agency is different and that is fair. Think about it this way. If you're applying again for a partnership position at a big five consulting firm, I am sure that they have different requirements for their applicants. And that's, again, just how the the
0: world works. If somebody queries you and they've used a completely different format to the one you've requested online, et cetera, do you just automatically delete it and just go, this person has not bothered to conform to what I ask? Or do you still still take a look at it? And I know that you answering this might be telling people they don't need to conform, but I'm just interested to know.
3: No, I would still read it. The only situation where I wouldn't read it, actually, I would still read it to figure this out, is if I, I need to know what your story is about. <laughs> That, that's essentially it. And I need to see your pages. We asked for the first 10 pages for a reason. I need to see if you can write. So I would be fine with it. Like, if you follow the different format, okay. I would rather you follow the same format because I'm a human being and I read queries in batches. And it makes it really, really hard for me for readability. And I wish it weren't, but it is because, again, it's just how my brain works. It makes it really hard for me if you deviate from that formula. But that's okay. Like, if, if you're story is really great. All I care about is your story.
2: The only issue is when red flags are layered upon each other, right? So a big red flag is okay. Yeah. So you don't follow our Whatever you know, I hope that you do. But if you don't personalize it, you say, "Dear agent," and then you just do some blanket opening, and then you don't follow our guidelines at all. Like that's three kind of red flags that say, "Okay, you don't know who I am. You know nothing about me. You just know that we're an agent, and you just don't care, right?" So if you don't care, why should I care, right? (laughs) You know, that's kind of what I'm. And typically, not not to be pessimistic, but typically, the kind
1: of
3: people who do that are the people who aren't putting thought into their work as well. These two things typically go hand hand in hand that, you know, you assume that you can just vomit words on the page and that's a novel and you don't have to go through any editing. Typically that's the kind of person who is writing, dear agent, I have a manuscript. Uh, Do you want to see it? You know, like that that sort of thing does happen. So,
0: okay. Another question is what are the best types of query letters and should you include your biggest platform? So for example, TikTok, Carly, would you like to take that one? The best
2: type of query letter just piques my attention, right? Like we are literally getting thousands a month. And so the job of a query letter is just to hook me in and get me interested. That's why we call this, our segment "Books with hooks. Like all I want to be is hooked. All I want is to forget about my life. You know, the the 10 minutes of reading your query and your pages, I want to be taken away. I want to be, I want to escape. I want to fall in love. I want to pick up the phone and call my editor friends and DM CC on Slack, you know, like I literally want to be overcome with emotion. And I've talked about this before on Twitter, but I get a real physiological feeling. Like when I am falling in love with a manuscript, I'm not dissimilar to any sort of like hit of dopamine you get from anything else like those are real feelings that I feel and I'm always hunting and searching that dopamine hit right and, and that's why we do this and that's why going through queries is a blessing and a curse right like the reason I still pursue the slush pile and the reason I still love reading queries is that I'm searching for that dopamine hit I'm, I'm always looking for it and, and that's what keeps me going
0: and in terms of the most important platform to include I would say if you can in your
2: email signature, just include the greatest hits. Just so if it's Instagram or Twitter, if it's TikTok and LinkedIn, you know, whatever it is, just include in your email signature a couple of the, the top hits there. In your author bio, if you've had a TikTok go viral, like my author, shout out to Kirsten Moglin. She's had, I don't know how many millions of hits on her on her TikTok about her book, The Arrangement. Like that's super fun. So anyway, let us know if there is a greatest hits that we need to know, but include it all in the email signatures. Well. All
0: right, next question. I would like to have some clarity on MSWL. Some agents have super detailed specific requests like story about this topic this town this year and it makes me wonder is it just because the agent is interested in that story or do they have an editor who would like to acquire it or something or is there another reason
3: this is a very interesting question because i want to challenge its premise You're saying, is it that the agent is interested in the story or that they have an editor who wants to acquire it? Our job as agents is to sell stuff to editors, right? So we are interested in the story. If we're asking to see a story, we're very much interested in it, 100%. We all have missions as agents. We want to further the books that matter, books that we believe in. As well, we should have editors who are interested in the same things that we do. And sometimes we do hear editors being really specific in their requests. And if it fits our brand and and our mission and our taste, we might put that out in the MSWL. But it doesn't mean that we're not interested as well. In fact, that is a necessary part of it.
0: And just on that, I feel like the person, I may be wrong, but I feel like why they're asking is they want to figure out if that's the kind of book they should be writing because there is a market for it. And I would caution against that because it's gonna take you a year to write this book. And by then, you know, this niche or whatever would have been filled and the agent and the editor have moved on and they want something else. So unless you have a book like that already written, and, you know, I wouldn't say look at what agents and editors want and then go, oh, I'm going to write that book because the trends change so quickly in publishing that you will have wasted a year on something and then that ship has sailed. Okay, let's take one last question. Agents often want to know why we approach them specifically, but how can we as writers afford to be so selective slash picky when the rate of rejection is so high? This is an excellent question,
2: but I kind of liken it to, you know, we're going into a long-term business partnership together. So I understand that you're querying lots of agents and I expect that you query lots of agents. I never expect exclusivity because it's in your best interest to field out all the interest and, and you know see if there could be a better fit for you out there. So I would say it's, it's a balancing act of putting in the amount of work and time and effort that it takes for that dream agent list, you know, and, and it's up to you how many agents you query in one batch. But I usually say is it depends on how organized you are. It depends on, you know, timing and many other factors. But I think it's realistic to query, you know, 15 to 20 agents at one time, as long as, again, you know, depending on how the requests are coming in and how quickly you're getting feedback and, and all of that sort of stuff, because, you know, you need to get the work out there. And I always say, oh, you only want to query agents that you want to work with. So if you start getting to your list and you're like, how do I personalize this email to this agent? Because I don't really know anything about them. Do you really want to work Like, is that somebody where if they were literally to pick up the phone and call you and say, you know, I fell in love with this manuscript, like you want to say jumping enthusiasm. Yes, I want to work with you. So you should know why you want to work with that agent, because if they were to call you, you need to know what your answer is. So you should be doing a little bit of that research off the bat. So I I understand why you're asking this question. And it makes complete sense to me. And I've talked before about the power imbalances of agenting and the author relationship and, and how it changes. And it's really tough to be putting yourself out there again and again. And again, not getting this feedback and not knowing if this personalization matters. The personalization does matter because I want to know why you want to go into business with me.
0: Wonderful, thanks, Carly. I know I said the last one would be the last, but this will be the ABF, the absolute bloody final. So I'll ask it of Cece. If an agent likes a manuscript but doesn't think it's right for them, how likely are they to suggest it to another agent on their team?
3: Very, very likely. We do it all the time. I'll read something that the quality of the writing is great. There's the story's really special, but for whatever reason, it's not a good fit for my list. You know, at at our agency, we typically do it via Slack. And sometimes it's really funny because we'll share, oh, I have this one thing. And then like multiple agents want it. And we just like, let's fight. (laughs) We don't actually fight. It's just a joke, but it's, it's really, it's really interesting. So if you do, for whatever reason, query myself or Carly or anyone else at our agency, we are absolutely a collaborative place and we share these things all the time.
0: Wonderful. I love to think of the agenting hunger games. All right. that's it for today's uh, segment. Thank you so much. And now we move on to today's guest.
2: My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things though about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of a one hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal
0: Today's guest is the author of the best-selling My Lovely Wife, nominated for Edgar, ITW, McCavity, and CWA Awards. Amazon Studios and Nicole Kidman's Blossom Films have partnered to produce a feature film based on the novel. Her second novel, He Started It, was released in 2020 and became an instant international bestseller. For Your Own Good is her latest novel, which has been optioned by Robert Downey Jr. and Greg Berlanti, for HBO Max. It's my pleasure to welcome Samantha Downing. Samantha, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to get to chat with you. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, I must say, I absolutely loved For Your Own Good. I sped through it so, so quickly. It was brilliant. And for our listeners, pick it up, read it, not just for those of you who are writing, you know, in the psychological thriller genre, but for anyone who wants to learn about pacing, who wants to learn about tension, and who wants to learn about kind of teasing your reader and leaving all these breadcrumbs, this trail of breadcrumbs, et cetera, as you keep your Reading, turning pages. It's an excellent, excellent book to read to learn how to do that. So Samantha, we're going to begin with a lightning round of 15 questions that I'm kind of going to fire at you. So are you ready? Can we begin? Yes. Wonderful. Question one: Are you a plotter or a pantser? I'm pantser. Oh, I love that. That was not the answer I was expecting. Okay, we'll (laughs) discuss that later. Number two: Do you write on computer or in longhand in notebooks? Computer. Do you like writing more in private or in public? Private. Do you prefer writing in silence or to music? Silence. Do you share your work while drafting or do you wait until the end?
4: I share it. I have a writers group that I
0: share. Wonderful. We're constantly telling our listeners how amazing writers groups are. So that's great to hear. What's your favorite point of view to write first or third person? I I don't have a preference. Depends on the story. Do you prefer present or past tense? Or again, does that depend on the story? Present. Okay. Prologues are awesome or prologues are cheating? I've never used one, so I guess I'll say cheating. (laughs) (laughs) Do you prefer drafting or revising? Drafting. Are you a fan of adverbs and adjectives or do you try and cut them all out? I try to cut them out. Do you love or hate the copy editing process? Uh, it's okay. It's, <laughs> I don't. meh. Uh, nah. <laughs> <laughs> meh, right. What comes to you first, character or plot? Character. What do you prefer, the three-act structure or using more action beats like in Save the Cat?
4: I don't think I do either one of those consciously,
0: so I'm not sure. Oh, great. We'll discuss that in more detail shortly then. What do you prefer, writing dialogue or description?
4: Both. Either one, really. I don't have a preference between those.
0: Okay. And last question. Are you a fan of backstory or do you avoid it at all costs?
4: Yeah. I hate backstory. So yeah. I-
0: yeah, that that comes through in your writing, which is why I specifically want to do to ask <laughs> you that. So so let's uh, after the lightning round, let's delve into that. What is it about backstory that you're not a fan of it that you try and avoid?
4: Well, it takes away from the current story, and so I, I try to only use it when it's absolutely necessary. A person backstory doesn't exist until you write it, and there's the the famous playwright Neil Labute and excuse my language, but what he says is backstory is bullshit. And (laughs) that's basically what it is. Um, it's sort of like as if you could take a person and say okay these are the events that made this person exactly the way they are and you really can't break down people like that it's really not that easy there's so many things that go into making a person who they are that I prefer to concentrate on who the character is right now and how they got that way maybe it's important maybe elements of it are important but This is the person that I'm giving you right now. So follow their story. And whether they were abused as a child or had a terrible breakup or whatever their thing is, maybe it's not that important. You know that you just need to know who they are now.
0: Yeah. And that came across very much in For Your Own Good. What I liked is that, you know, we know that Teddy must have a very interesting kind of backstory, but, you know, you just tease some of it and you don't dwell on it a heck of a lot. And the reader finds out these little tidbits as they're going along. So it unfolds in a kind of an organic way, as opposed to, you know, loading up the story with that backstory, which is wonderful. Right. Exactly.
4: We really don't need to know about Teddy's childhood. That's It's not really relevant to who we- is now. There's a lot of other, there are some things, you know, that, are the important things, but I don't need to tell a whole childhood story to get there.
0: No, exactly. But even like the more, more recent past, you know, we, I, I don't want to give away spoilers at all, but we know at the beginning of the story, there's something going on with him and his wife. And we know that, you know, there's something that's recently happened that's kind of happened before the story begins. But again, that's something you tease out, you know, as opposed to giving us all of that up front. And that's something, you know, I say to my students, when I teach creative writing, is try and withhold these things for as long as possible because that's what keeps readers turning pages that's what keeps them guessing right exactly and you the story has to
4: unfold in pieces you can't give the whole story away in the beginning otherwise you don't have a story that that is the story so it it has to unfold with along with the action
0: yeah was that something that you always were able to do intuitively samantha as a writer or is it something that you had to learn along the way well i I think
4: it's something I learned along the way, but it took it took years of writing and reading to learn it. I I write intuitively. I don't plot. I don't outline. I don't do any of that. I don't follow a structure at all. I just write completely intuitively, but something put that in my head. So I've written a lot of books. My first novel published was my 12th book that I wrote. So I've had a lot of practice and a lot of years of practice to be able to do that.
0: Oh, wow. Can we talk about that a bit? Because you know that's something that comes up so much on the podcast is the problem with, when you read great books is that you just see the finished product. You know, you see this book that sparkles and that shines. And so, it's almost like a magic trick. It, it gives us illusion of it just being so easy to do, but we don't see all the practice and all the failed manuscripts that go into writing that book that is eventually so perfect. So 12 books before your first book was published, could you tell us about that? Were they all in the same genre or were you finding your way into the kind of stories you wanted to tell?
4: The second one, they were definitely not all thrillers. I wrote a lot of different types of genres. I really did it as a hobby over the course of 20 years and never really thought I would get published. I don't have a degree in writing. I don't have a pedigree. I didn't have any contacts in the industry. So the idea of getting published really wasn't even in my head. So I really did it because I loved it. And I enjoyed it the same, same way other people like to go home at night and play the guitar or cook or garden, or it was just my hobby. So I, I explored all different kinds of genres before coming to thrillers. And thrillers are what I read the most of growing up. And it's still my favorite genre. And after Gone Girl came out, it created a whole new subgenre of thrillers where the focus was really on family and relationships and um, neighborhoods and not so much on having a police officer or a detective as a lead character, which I don't know anything about. I've never been in law enforcement, so that whole subgenre opened up, and that was when I wrote um, my lovely wife, where I-, I thought, well, this is this is a thriller I can write because I don't have to have any specialized police knowledge to be able to do it. And it focused more on on the relationships between the people as opposed to the cat and mouse chase game.
0: And was that the first? novel you then queried or, you know, after 10 novels, were you going, okay, let me maybe start querying an agent. Let me see if I can potentially get my work published. I find that a lot of writers, it's the people in their lives who encourage them to, you know, try and get their work out there because they love reading it so much that they want everyone else to read it. How, how did that happen for you?
4: Right. Yeah. I did not query any of my novels. Actually, somebody queried my lovely wife for me. She sent it to a friend who sent it to an agent and it got to an agent in New York who contacted me and he only represented um, nonfiction writers. So he said, this book is not for me, but I can tell you who to send it to. And at that point, I sent it to the person that he recommended and she ended up becoming my agent and she sold the book in three days. It was like the the 20 year road to an overnight success.
0: I know that's the thing. So people see the overnight success because I know there's going to be listeners here who are listening to this and don't take the wrong way. They're going to hate you because they have been querying, uh, writing and querying and writing and querying and just having so much rejection. And so there's going to be a part of them. It's like, what the hell? You didn't even query your novel and you got it sold and represented. But like you say, you know, 20 years leading up to that overnight success.
4: Right. And there are no overnight successes. Everybody pays their dues one way or another. You pay your dues and you have to put the work in. So I did not study writing. Maybe I could have excelled quicker if I had. I was just learning as I go. And just doing it because I loved it. So it took 20 years to come up with a book that was publishable. I don't think any of my old books even are. I don't think the writing is at the right level. So my sole focus was on the writing. And that was it. So when the opportunity presented itself, I had 20 years of writing behind me. So other people go the query route. And they don't write 12 books. But they query you know, 500 times and and constantly revise and and. Uh, edit their books and send it out again and so everybody puts the work in so in in some some way or another you put the work in whichever wherever it ends up
0: yeah yeah there is no secret formula to the success you know and uh, that's just it's so encouraging to hear so so the person who sent it off kind of behind your back is that now your favorite person in the world or are you you still plagued by feelings of betrayal (laughs)
4: no it's no it's great she had asked me if she could send it she loved the book and I said sure she just wanted to send it to a friend of hers and her friend happened to know an agent in New York so wow this this random agent in New York got a, a book in his email box that just came from his friend and his, wow. and that was it and he didn't even know what he was getting he didn't even know what genre it was there was no query letter there was no nothing there was just a book so so
0: so serendipitous that's amazing okay so moving on from there just um in terms of the tools you use when when you write, so do you have special software that you like to use, or you, do you just use Word? How do you how do you keep track of everything when when you're writing?
4: No, I use Word and I have one file that has the entire book in it and that's it. And then at some point I do open up a second file and I start sort of listing all the clues and the hints and the red herrings that I've dropped in the book so that I can refer to it later and pick up on them again or delete them if I don't use them. So I guess I have two files, Um, but in in general, the whole book is just one big file and I have to just scroll through it. And that's how I do it. (laughs) That's just how I've always done it. So I don't mess with the system.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's amazing because I'm I'm finding my my process is becoming more sort of convoluted with time. It's now Scrivener and, you know, Aeon 2 timeline to keep track of timelines and things like that. But it's, yeah, which just, again, so for our listeners, so important from what Samantha saying is one, you don't need degrees in writing. You don't need an MFA. You don't need to take a ton of courses. Being a voracious reader uh, and just practicing the craft is really enough to to master it and then two you don't need all these bells and whistles to to write you know you just need a blank page and there you go so so that's very encouraging is there a part of the writing that you were weakest on in the beginning that you found you really had to focus on so like for me description was something that I really struggled with because I don't care about it when I'm reading like I don't care what the author says the character looks like or what the room looks like I'm going to picture it how the hell I want to anyway and so that's something I really had to work on was, was there anything you found you had to focus on?
4: Well, descriptions, uh, my writing is really sparse. So if I put it in the book, there's a reason why it's there and I get rid of everything extra. So I'm not real wordy in my books, but I try to give someone just enough description that they can picture it the way they want to picture it. I don't, I don't, I never pay attention to character descriptions because I form an idea in my own head of what someone looks like when I'm reading a book and it may or may not even match what the author tells me they look like. I just picture somebody based on their personality. So it, character descriptions are hard for me because I just want you to picture who you imagine, but you have to give some type of character description. So there was, I think it was, um, uh, I can't remember his name. One of the, Hard boiled crime writers who used to constantly just he, he was the same way, he hated character descriptions and he used to just compare every character to a celebrity and say they look kind of like this celebrity. <laughs> and that was the whole description, I, and I thought that was great. But I, th- yeah.
0: I think that's genius. Some people would consider it cheating, but honestly, when I write, I have vision boards and I print out pictures of how I imagine these characters to look, and they are generally celebrities or you know, someone well known etc etc so I I do often uh, want to cheat and just go well she looks like Whoopi Goldberg Mm -hmm. (laughs) but yeah it's and it's true that's exactly what I do I picture the character someone I know or a character in a TV show I recently watched or whatever when I'm reading other people's work so unless it's really important in that you know this character having red hair and that character having red hair is going to be important to the plot down the line I'm the same as you I really don't care about that what's your favorite sort of trick for creating and maintaining suspense? Because you create suspense and tension incredibly, incredibly well. Some writers sort of depend on cliffhangers. Do you have something that you fall back on in terms of creating that kind of tension or not really?
4: Um, Not really. Just, I think it's just a matter of, the beginning sort of sets up the original setup of the book, but every story has to become bigger at that point and it has to become wider. And it's just a matter of telling that story in pieces and dropping things. I remember in, One thriller I was reading. It it was sort of something that was dropped in the middle of a chapter, yet like I almost missed it and had to go back a few pages and think, did I miss something? But a character mentions out of nowhere a second cell phone. And it all of a sudden I was thinking, wait, did I read something about it? He that he had two cell phones, which is a big clue that something's going on with this character, but it was dropped in so casually that it was, it was so brilliantly done. And I just thought, oh, this character has a second. Well, that changes the story now. Why does he have a second cell phone? And all of a sudden I want to know more. So I, I try to look at that kind of a thing as a model where I drop something that changes the story, widens the story, makes it bigger than what you thought it was or makes it go in a different direction than you thought it was. Um, yeah. I also try to not be predictable. So whatever, I try to think like a thriller reader because I am a thriller reader. So I, I go through a list of what, what are the most predictable things that could happen from this? And then of course I don't use any of them. So yeah. um, in terms of reveal, and twists and things like that. I try to, I know that thriller readers are looking for the clues and they're looking for the hints and they're very sophisticated readers because they've read so many thrillers and they're looking for it. So I know if I say he put the picture in the drawer of the desk, that's so specific Reader is immediately going to pick up on that and think that picture in the drawer in the desk is going to be important, or else she wouldn't have said it like that. So, what I need to do at that point is do something they don't expect with that picture in the drawer in the desk. If they think somebody's gonna find it, I'm gonna do something totally different and burn the house down. <laughs> and now the and now the picture's gone. So what you thought was you might see the clue, but what you what happens with the clue is the important part. You never want to make a reader feel like they're not smart enough to follow. So they were smart enough to pick it, figure out that it was a clue, but they just didn't see where it ended up.
0: I um, interviewed Mark Tavani. He's an editor at Putnam. He edited uh, The Marsh King's Daughter, uh, Karen Dion's book. And he and I were chatting about, you know, writing this kind of genre. And he, you know, he was saying that the best writers hide things in plain sight. You know, it's, it's not that when this twist happens, that the reader's like, how the hell did this happen? It's like, it feels inevitable and yet they didn't inevitably see it coming. Like they saw all of these clues hidden in plain sight, but they weren't able to add them up to what was about to happen. And when it does happen, they're like, well, of course, you know, and, and that's it's a great way of, of doing that. With your writing groups, do you then ask them to tell you what they're thinking at certain points in the story so that you can judge you know the reader's reaction as they're going along to help guide you or or no
4: yes i do i do um i have a couple of trusted writers who they read my work in progress and give me their impressions on it and give me more importantly give me the impressions on the character and so i I know if the character's coming across as the way I want them to come across, whether it's good or bad or sketchy or what have you. So um, I, I think that that kind of effective feedback is really important because you may know exactly what you want to say, but you may not be getting it right on the page and you you need to know how people are taking what you're writing.
0: And that leads to my next question. So, you know, you write diabolical characters and that's so incredibly hard to do. Very few writers are able to do that because most often the feedback from agents and editors is, oh, I don't like this character. But really, you don't have to like a character to be invested in their story and to want to see how the story unfolds. So for our listeners who are writing sort of diabolical or unlikable characters, what's your Advice to them in terms of getting the reader invested in them, even if they don't personally like them?
4: Um, I, I don't think it matters if a character is likable or unlikable, it only matters if they're compelling. And that's what I focus on is writing a character that you want to follow, regardless of what they're doing, that you want to know what happens next. And I think the key to that is making them relatable in some fashion. You can be a horrible, terrible psychopath or sociopath, but maybe you have a broken heart and people can relate to that broken heart part of it, that having a broken heart makes you do crazy things and they just take it much further than a normal per a normal non-violent <laughs> person would do so if there's just some little thing that the character has that's either driving them or that they can relate to in for your own good um, the character is a teacher who is a regular teacher on a teacher salary and he teaches wealthy entitled kids at a private school and I can only imagine what it would be like to be that teacher your students drive better cars that, than you have and they have a more prosperous life and they live in a bigger house and they're going to go on to an Ivy League school. And that must be a horrible position for a teacher to be in. And I think that a lot of people can relate to that and that you would, how uncomfortable of a situation that would be and how angry that might make you.
0: Yeah, I certainly related to that in the beginning. I was like, oh my God, Teddy's awful. And then, you know, I was like, oh, well, if I was teaching these kids, I'd probably be the exact same way. You know, so, so that was something that I could definitely, definitely relate to and you did an an amazing job there. So, last question, because we're kind of finishing up on, on our our time together is, and again, I don't want to give too much away, but you do something really diabolical and genius with coffee pods in your story. And was this an idea you came up with all by yourself? Are you that like evil genius or was it something in the news? How did you, how did you latch onto that idea?
4: No, I did come up with it. I was in a hotel and there was a little single serve coffee machine with the pods. And I just thought, Something like the, the pods were there for me to use, and I just thought it would be so easy to tamper with these, and like <laughs> anybody could do it. And it's so with a coffee pot. I mean, if as long as nothing's coming out the bottom or the top isn't written off, ripped off, I'm not going to inspect the whole pod and and see if it's been tampered with. So it would be so easy for someone to tamper with it. And I thought, you know, it could
0: be the whoever stayed in this room last night could have done it. And
4: so, yeah, I really did come up with that on my own.
0: <laughs> that, is, that is evil genius. I'm never going to have coffee in your house if I ever get invited over. <laughs> um, did you... So when you come up with that idea is it something that you kind of test out because he had a process th- this thing that he did with the coffee pods so are you kind of like a method actor equivalent of an author actually you know seeing if you could inject things in or do things or is it just a case of you know you you can imagine him doing it and so you don't need to test it out
4: No I, yeah I didn't physically test it out. Just the idea is enough for me.
0: Yeah, that was. And and was that something that, you know, because you said earlier that character comes to you before plot. And this is so intriguing to me that as a thriller writer, that you don't plot, that you don't plan, that you don't structure and that character comes to you first, because that's so different to other thriller writers. Most thriller writers come up with a premise. They have to tightly structure, plot the novel, et cetera. But for you, you come up with, with character first. And is it a case of, you know, Teddy comes to you and then you have to think of ways that he's going to mess with people. And so the plot unfolds or how does that part of the process work for you?
4: Yeah. Um, in this case, I started with a teacher and a teacher who has, who knows that he has a lot of power over students and he has the power to really affect their lives by the grades that he gives them, by his recommendation letters, by the punishments he gives them and he wields that power in just sort of according to his own criteria and it's not not necessarily based on merit and i just started with that and went from there
0: amazing amazing well Samantha, thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with us um it's incredibly incredibly interesting we wish you much success once again with for your own good thank uh, you so much and that's it for today's episode If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.